here. Happy morning. My name is Joel and welcome to Heart City Church. Uh, please turn in God's word to Esther chapter 2 where we're learning from this story about God's providence. We're seeing God at work in this incredible story. Providence in Esther is God's plan, his purpose, his power to bring about his glory and our good in human history, even overruling this world's wickedness and every evil that we experience. And providence is still in play today, not just in ancient Persia. Sports Illustrated uh, actually did a story once on a pro basketball player, Michael Riley. The story was called The Shot That Saved Lives and talked about his story. He actually grew up in Pine Bluff, Arkansas, a city dominated by drug dealers, robbers ruled the streets, and gunfire rang out regularly. When Michael was little, his family actually experienced a horrific tragedy that came due to the actions of an unstable man. 19-year-old Roderick Rankin went over to his ex's house to do what he had promised. He told her that he would kill her entire family if she ever left him, and she left him. He entered her house with a 9 millimeter and shot three family members, each in the head. One gunshot victim was Michael's aunt, Ernestine. If you're his family, would you think any good could come from this? Michael's grandma, Dottie, a godly woman, had actually taken out an insurance policy on all her children, knowing where she lived. And she used the money from her daughter's tragic death to transform her backyard. She installed a fenced-in, concrete, lighted basketball court for her grandkids and for his friends. And on Grandma Dottie's court, there's no swearing, there's no fighting. You had to be respectful. You could only play basketball. That court became a safe space for Michael. And you know what? He learned to shoot there. Fast forward 14 years. Michael's playing in an SEC tournament game in Atlanta for the University of Alabama. And he's actually played horribly. But they're only down three with two seconds to go in the game. So during the timeout, Michael says a prayer. Bama inbounds the ball to Michael. They try to foul him, but they mess up and they miss. And he fires the ball at the last second. Doink, doink. Swish. It's good. Overtime. Actually, that shot didn't change the game's outcome. Bama still lost the game. But Michael's shot mattered. Michael's shot saved lives. During overtime, you can actually watch it on YouTube. Play came to a stop as a sound like a freight train came through the dome. It was reverberating through the stadium. The ceiling scaffolding begins to rock. Insulation starts falling from the ceiling. The crowd's getting up. They're wondering what in the world's going on. What's going on? A tornado outside is ripping through the heart of downtown Atlanta. They say one of the safest places you can be during a tornado is in a domed-in structure. And nearly 15,000 people remained for overtime because Michael's shot went in. When Michael's Aunt Ernestine was shot 14 years earlier, would you imagine that God's plan would be to overrule that evil, use that tragedy to provide the resources to a godly grandmother, to put up a court for her grandson so he could stay off the streets 
and learn how to shoot a basketball so that he would be equipped and ready to make a shot that delayed a game and saved thousands of lives from the path of a tornado on March 14, 2008. Friends, God has been doing that throughout all of human history. Welcome to Esther 2. We're going to start in verse 19. Now hear the word of our God. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast poor, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay ten thousand talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, so that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script, and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. 
the couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, our time is short, our need is great. Will you do something in the mere moments we have, something momentous that will transform us? May the preacher go away and may we see the love of Jesus and your heart for us. Send your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, happy Father's Day to all the dads who are joining us, and I expect many of us will be celebrating with dads later. I also want us to be cognizant that others will not be because their fathers are not around on this special day. You know, actually, the same is true from last week in that Persian wedding scene. I found myself thinking that Esther's father would not have been there to walk her down the aisle. I assume fathers had some kind of a role in Persian weddings. You see, Esther, she was an orphan. Ahasuerus' father, Darius, he had also died. So he wasn't there for his son's big day. And our king would have missed his father because he had followed in his footsteps. We saw last week. He was daddy's boy trying to do the thing his daddy didn't finish in conquering the Greeks. These newlyweds were missing their fathers on a special day as some of us might be today as well. But whether your father is present or absent on this Father's Day, the good news is that we were given fathers so that we might look up all life long. And not just when we're little and our fathers stand in the place of God. Friends, our father loves and our father longings are heavenly homing beacons. The best earthly fathers are but dim pictures of our loving Heavenly Father who is ever-present in our lives and powerfully working, even if today he feels absent and unfelt by you. Esther is teaching us that, about God's providence, the constant care of our unseen Father God. Our catechism teaches that God's providence is as completely holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. And to see if that's true, I would invite you to write down Daniel 4, 34 and 35. That's a verse. We actually see another ancient pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, who probably gives the best definition of God's overarching power over everything in the entire cosmos. Our big point today is that we need to know that our father, even when he is silent and seems to be absent, He is still at work in our lives. He's ever at work behind the scenes in our triumphs, in our trials, and even in our tragedies. I know we have no problem with number one, (laughs) the triumphs. But those last two, the trials and the tragedies, that's where it's hard, right? I don't have to know you too well to know that every person sitting in here that your soul has deep hurts that haunt you daily. They may not be dominant to your thoughts, or maybe they are, but life in a broken world is hard. It's hard. We've all lost loved ones, experienced evils, felt failures, 
suffered slights. So how do you process all the hurts and the heartaches? In light of the Bible's teaching of a good God who promises to bless his people, how do you process that? A firm faith in God's providence is necessary. It's an understanding that we only have the tiniest little view. We only see a thread of a grander tapestry that God is actually weaving together a magnificent masterpiece that one day we will celebrate for eternity. B.B. Warfield says, A firm faith in the universal providence of God is the solution of all earthly troubles. You realize there is no way Michael Raleigh's family could have seen that that shot that killed Aunt Ernestine would be used by God as the catalyst for a series of events over the next 14 years that would put Michael in a position that he could make a shot that saved thousands of lives. Friends, do you believe that God is positioning you through all your worldly troubles so that you might bring him glory and also do others good? Esther, we saw last week, she could not have imagined that God was positioning her to save lives as she was abducted from her home. Nor could Mordecai have thought this as he headed to work one day, as we just read, that God was actually positioning him this very day to save a life, and then many more to come. Our first heading is the slight that, that saved. The slight that saved. Our text begins with us being reminded that Persia is not a safe place for God's people. Persia is described as a thoroughly pagan but very secular culture like our own. That's why Mordecai told Esther to hide her identity, which means she's hiding her faith. Every day, Mordecai and Esther, they're asking this question, how can I be a faithful Jew in a godless land? I hope you ask yourself that question when you get up in the morning and that you put on the armor of God. How can I be a faithful Christian in a secular society? It seems here that Mordecai, he's at the king's gate. He has a civil service position. And providentially, he just so happens to be at the right place and the right time to overhear a plot to murder the king. It's a pair of guys who actually guard the threshold. This means they not only have anger, they have access and ability. By the way, this king actually will die at the hands later on in his life of bodyguards just like this. Sounds like he wasn't such a great guy to work for. So I really found myself impressed by Mordecai's actions to save him. Think about this. Ahasuerus literally kidnapped his adopted daughter, Esther. He took Esther to be his concubine. And now Mordecai overhears a plot to kill this culprit. How many of you would have said, serves him right? But Mordecai knows from God's word that is not the right thing to do. The prophet Jeremiah told the Jews when they became pilgrims to seek the welfare of the city that they're in. That's what our city is trying to do, to seek the welfare of our own community here. For Mordecai here, this means he has to take action to save its leader. 1 Peter 2, 9-17, through 17, I invite you to read that later. It tells us as sojourners to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. We're to both fear God and honor the emperor. That means Donald Trump, President Biden, whoever's next. We're to honor them. We're to subject ourselves to them. 
because God actually, read Romans 13, places often godless rulers over us in authority. Not because we're to put our final trust in them, but because we trust in the God who set them over us. That even the evils they do are meant for our good and for his glory. Our Persian pilgrim, he gets this. Mordecai does. Because he then tells Esther, who has access to the king, who tells the king, it's found out this is a real and present danger. And those two are publicly executed. And the king's life is saved. Yay, Mordecai! And then we're just left scratching our heads. Persian emperors were known for their over-the-top responses. If you angered the emperor, they would make you pay dearly. In fact, this Ahasuerus actually built a bridge once. A horrible storm came through, blew it out. So when he got to the bridge and it wasn't there, he had his soldiers whip the water and then he beheaded all the guys who built the bridge. If you did him wrong, oh, he got you. But if you did him good, he would pour out his generosity. He'd want the whole public to know what a great guy he was if you supported him. But not Mordecai. Mordecai gets completely slighted here. All Mordecai gets for saving this man's life is a couple lines in his chronicles, the old dusty books that you know you set up on the shelf. It's like the king says, yeah, I'll make a note of that minor detail that what's-his-face did. <laughs> Mordecai didn't even get a plaque on the wall. I mean, you'd think he'd be employee of the month, right? It's a baffling oversight. This is a total slight after he saved him. How did he feel when the very next thing we read is the king's going to hand out a promotion? After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted, not Mordecai. Mordecai gets passed over and someone else gets the promotion. Let me ask you, you ever been passed over for a promotion? Ever been slighted at work? You ever felt unappreciated by people that you've devoted your lives to? Now let me ask you this. Do you believe that happened for a good reason? Maybe you're thinking, Joel, you're out of your gourd right now. I appreciate that. Because maybe slights, maybe scorns that you've received are why you're not a believer. Your proofs that God cannot be good. Anybody remember that movie, Bruce Almighty? Came out about 15 years ago. Jim Carrey plays the role of a guy named Bruce Nolan. He's a really hard-working guy who wants so badly to get this promotion to become the news anchor. And on the day that comes, when it comes, he gets passed over for the promotion, and it ends up being the absolute worst day of his whole life. So when he gets home, his girlfriend says to him, trying to comfort him, everything happens for a reason. And Bruce explodes, and he blames it on God. Here's what he says. I'm a victim. God is a mean kid sitting on an anthill with a magnifying glass and I'm the ant. He could fix my life in five minutes if he wanted to, but he'd rather burn off my feelers and watch me squirm. Let's be honest. Have any of you ever felt that way about God? You know he's there, but he sure doesn't seem merciful, much less good in light of your life. I do want to say, friends, I am sorry about all the slights, the scorns, the sorrows, the sufferings that you've gone through. But you're actually using the wrong evidence to make your case against God. Your life's sufferings and slights are not the evidence to determine God's mercy and goodness. 
the life of his suffering son, is the evidence of God's goodness and mercy to us. Jesus' sufferings, Jesus' lights are the evidence as he took our place on the cross. Jesus' helplessness under the magnifying glass of God's white-hot burning, his white-hot wrath, paying for your sins, that is where you have the evidence of God's goodness and God's mercy. And you're just getting a small taste in all your slights and sufferings of God's invitation to understand sonship. I know a lot of people who just want the glory. Yay, Jesus, go to the cross. Yay, yay, yay. But Jesus calls us to take up our cross and follow him. If you truly want to know the love of Jesus, you won't just find it in glory. You'll know because you endure some of the same sufferings he does. If you're suffering, that's a way you can draw near to Jesus because he understands and you can know the Father's love for you. The cross of Christ shows us that God had a better plan for Mordecai and for us. Yeah, God could have fixed Mordecai's situation in five minutes. Could have given him the promotion. But stay tuned. That oversight, those couple lines in the Chronicles are going to be a far better thing. Because years from now, a sleepless night and some late night reading is going to turn this slight into the starting point of salvation for all the Jews. And salvation for countless more like you and I through the coming Savior that comes to the Jews, our Jewish Savior, Jesus Christ. Friends, God is at work, the work of salvation, even in the misfortunes of those who love him. But only eyes of faith, a firm faith, will enable us to see that all things work together for our good and for his glory. So let's move on to the, that, that fellow now who actually did get the promotion. I'm titled the next section, Promotion and Plotting. And here's where the drama begins. Because at this point, Esther's a good story, but it doesn't really have, you know, kind of that spice to it yet. Because we don't have a bad guy. I mean, you got an insecure king. you got a lot of foolish officials. We don't have a villain. Enter Haman the Horrible. <laughs> Haman the Horrible. And he's about as bad a villain as you can find in the whole Bible. We read in verse 1 that King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite to the number two spot in all of Persia. And also that he commanded everyone to bow down before him, but not Mordecai. And we're not given any reason why. Other than he says, I'm a Jew. Some say, my commentaries, it's idolatry for him to bow down. But actually to serve in the king's gate, Mordecai would have to bow down before the king. Esther, Esther will later do this. Bowing was simply a way of showing honor. There's nothing about worship in this. But the author has given us some clues. He's told us that Haman is an Agagite. And I know that won't mean much to us if we don't know our Bibles. So for homework, look up Exodus 17, Deuteronomy 25, 19, and 1 Samuel 15. Exodus 17, Deuteronomy 25, 19, and 1 Samuel 15. If you want, you can throw in Numbers 13, which I read about this morning. You'll find that there's a nation called the Amalekites who are the arch enemies of God's people. From the moment Israel escapes Egypt, the Amalekites are seeking to destroy God's people. Oh, and the title given to an Amalekite leader is Agag. That's a title given to every king. Look ahead to verse 10, how Haman is described. Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, 
the enemy of the Jews. He's never simply Haman for our author. He's Haman the Agagite. He is the enemy of God's people. And God will say, actually, in Deuteronomy 25, while they're still in the wilderness, they must not forget what the Amalekites did. And what's the problem with the Amalekites? You'll read in that verse, Amalek does not fear God. That is important. Amalek does not fear God. This is actually where we're being introduced to a second theme, a minor theme in Esther. There's a conflict going on between God's people who put their trust in him and those who do not fear God. There's two sides. This is actually a conflict that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. When the serpent came to Adam and Eve in the garden and he tempted them. Do you remember what he said? Take what God forbids and you will be like God. You will be like God. Do you see the lie? Mankind was already actually made like God. They were made in God's image. And the devil says, but you don't need to fear God. You can be God and you can rule over the earth without him. And they took and they ate and their pride in themselves and their own flesh led to their fall and all of us are experiencing the consequences. Now God actually could have, that moment, done away with these rebels, right? This is cosmic treason. He's given them everything, created them, and for them to disobey. But Father God showed them mercy. In Genesis 3.15, God promised, this is the first promise in the Bible, the first gospel promise, that the offspring of the woman would crush the offspring of the serpent. God's saying there's going to be a battle going on through all human history between two groups, the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. The offspring of the woman refers ultimately to Jesus, but then also to his followers, those in Christ, those who listen to Jesus' voice and they fear God. They fear their father. The other side, that's got the serpent babies there, the serpent being Satan. All who listen to Satan's lie and put their trust in flesh are children of Satan. That actually makes everyday Father's Day. Every person that you meet is living to please their father every day. Either Father God or Satan. That's not me saying this. This is Jesus saying this. Look up John 8 where Jesus tells some Jews the reason they won't receive his word, why they won't receive him, John 8, 44, it's because he says your father is the devil and they live to please him. Now do you see why Mordecai won't bow before Haman? Why he suddenly shifts his silent stance and publicly declares to everyone that he is a Jew. Which is actually pretty remarkable when you think about it. <laughs> it's one thing not to bow to the enemy. It's another thing then to publicly declare your faith. Haman didn't even notice, actually. Did you see that, that Mordecai wasn't bowing? Some other people noticed. Some co-workers come and say, Hey, Mordecai, what are you doing? Why aren't you bowing like the rest of us? Mordecai says, I'm a Jew. I'm a Jew. He didn't have to tell them that. Because said, ah, I got to sniff back today. You know, I can't. He could have done any kind of excuse, right? But he shares his faith so that his co-workers will head off to Haman see if he'll get away from it, get away with it. Actually, he's exposing Haman. That's what's happening. Actually, I found myself really just blown away by this. Mordecai knows this is a dangerous place to be a Jew. So he's not only putting his own butt on the line, 
But by declaring his faith to his enemy who has all the power, he's putting every Jew in jeopardy. This is one of these questions the commentators wrestle with. Why would he do this? All the difference in the world between flaunting our faith and forsaking our faith. Mordecai realizes with Haman's promotion what this means if he bows. And actually the author gave us another clue when he first introduced Mordecai back in chapter 2 verse 5. He said Mordecai was a Benjaminite son of Kish. What other famous Israelite was also a Benjaminite son of Kish? Anybody know? Israel's very first king, King Saul. In 1 Samuel 15, that's that last passage, you're going to read about King Saul's final failure. Saul is told by God, by the prophet, through the prophet Samuel, to go out and to destroy the Amalekites. Satan's seed is endangering God's people in the land and God's plan to bring salvation. But Saul, he only partly obeys, and he actually leaves King Agag alive. And when Samuel goes up and asks him, what is this? Why have you not obeyed God? Saul's finally his excuse at the end when he admits what, what it was. He says, because I feared the people. I feared man. King Saul didn't fear God and listen to his voice. He put his trust in man and listened to their voice. And as a result, here we are in Esther. Centuries later and now evil has the upper hand. Haman the Agagite is now reigning over God's people and demanding they bow. Friends, our refusal to listen to God's voice, our sins will have consequences for our children. Do you see that? But the good news is we don't have to stay stuck in the sins of our parents, of our families, whatever they've given us, whatever baggage we carry. We don't have to stay stuck. Look at Mordecai. He decides he's not going to fear man like Saul in previous generations. He's going to trust that listening to God's voice and fearing God will bring blessing. To do otherwise would be to turn away from the Lord, we saw in Jeremiah 17. And to doom future generations to suffer under Satan's seed here, Haman. So he reveals his faith to expose Haman for who he is. And boy, we see Haman's true colors right away. He's not just filled with fury. He starts plotting right away. Not just to kill the guy who won't bow, Final solution. The seed of the serpent, do you see this? Wants to destroy every last one of God's people. So Haman, because he wants to bring this kind of destruction, he begins to cast pure. This is like tossing dice, trying to figure out a lucky day, right? What's the best lucky day? This is a very secular culture, right? Everything's up to chance. But friends, there's no such thing as luck. There are no chance happenings. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. I need that verse because I can't beat my wife in Machikoro. She just destroys me every time. That's from God. <sighs> friends, have faith in Father God's providential care. Notice the month that comes up is Adar, the twelfth month. That means... He's, they're given maximum time. But even more providential is the day that the edict is issued. Verse 12, the 13th day of the first month, the Jews get the news. Do you know what day that is? That's the eve before Passover. 
when Jews are celebrating God's great deliverance from Egypt, at the time they're remembering how God saves, this message comes out. God lets the enemy deliver this message at the very time they're remembering God will provide and God will save. Do you see that God is the one writing Persian history? If you do, you'll also see he's writing your history and our history today. Have firm faith in your father's care. Our final point is injustice and genocide. Haman's figured out the day his plotting's done. He brings now his plan to the king. He begins by alienating an unnamed people. Doesn't even tell them who they are, whose laws are different. He adds then they disobey the king and their unprofitable servants. He's introducing injustice into the king's court. He lies like his father because actually Esther and Mordecai, they are obedient and they are profitable, don't you think? <laughs> but Haman knows just how insecure the king is and he plays him like a fiddle. Haman also knows that the king loves wealth and he just lost a fortune fighting the Greeks. So as he suggests, genocide. He offers money equaling half of the Persian annual revenue. This is no minor gift. He's putting his money where his mouth is. He's sweetening the deal so that the king cannot refuse this. What blows your mind more? How much Haman hates the Jews? That he'd murder women and children? Or how weak and gullible this king is? <laughs> the king just hands over his ring and says, Do with them as seems best to you. How do you like that for a leader? He relinquishes all responsibility. He never asks about the identity of the people. No evidence of any crimes. And the reason is, actually, the king is stuck in his own sin cycle. His own sin cycle of self-destruction due to his own insecurity. Chapter 1, you remember? His insecurity led him to agree to a bad law. Somebody came to him, introduced a bad law, which ended up banishing his queen, and he regretted it later. You see, this is a repeat. The result of this edict is going to do the same thing. It's going to end it for his dear Queen Esther, who he loves. And then we're left with this remarkable final scene. Haman and the king sit down to have a drink while Susa is thrown into a state of utter confusion. And here we are. And what do we do with this? I want to make two suggestions. First, let's not think that this sort of scene is beyond us as modern people. Hitler's final solution was not even 100 years ago. Rwanda. I met a woman from there. Sudan today. You ever just shake your head and cry out because you see just how evil our world is in societies? See the atrocities? Does it ever just chill you to your bones? See the evil that continues on in our day. Let's not pretend like we're beyond this. And it's near. Take the S out of Susa. Do you ever feel confused in the USA? Do you ever feel confused at what's going on today? The reason, friends, is that there is a battle raging between supernatural cosmic powers. We talked about this in Ephesians 6, that we can't see so beyond us. And mankind is the battlefield. And so many are ignorant, but we cannot be. There are folks who are willfully obeying the serpent, who want to destroy Christians. I was shaking my head at what they allowed at a Dodgers game recently. And that's just the start. 
Let's not be oblivious to this. Which leads to my second suggestion. How will we be firm in our faith when trials, when testing come, when tragedies hit us? How will you and I live out our faith day by day in our jobs, in our living rooms, here as a community, as we gather to worship? How will we be firm in our faith when the screws start to be put to us? By meditating on God's providence. I want us to recite together once again. A couple more weeks, we're going to be working on our June verse of the month. Meditate on this. Take this in. Be reciting it to you. Believing it. Trusting it. Praying God get it into your soul. Let's recite it all together. Our June verse, it's at the bottom of our text. Let us say together, Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Our Father will not provide us immunity to all the trials that come in this world life. But he does tell us to believe that he is complete control of everything, every situation. So those who fear him and obey, we get to do mattering things now and we get to win in the end. What happens in the court, whether it's the King's Court in Susa or a court in Atlanta at the Georgia Dome, it's all in God's hands. We must trust that this is our Father's world when it makes no sense at all what's going on around us. John Flavel once said, Providence is like a Hebrew word. You have to read it backwards. Yet, even as you're able to look back and see what God has done in your life, and this was no, I was talking to my mom on Friday, and she's, I was talking about somebody I was ministering to, and she just said, you know what? I'm so thankful for this family who, when she was a little girl, would drive way out of their way to pick her up, to bring her to church for years, and she became a Christian and brought many people in my family to Christ. And she says, and now you've been brought to Christ, and now you're bringing other people to Christ. One family, and she didn't know I was even preaching Esther. Just talk about the providence of God, one small act. We can do mattering things. And it's only as you look backwards you begin to see, as my mom was showing me right there. It's like a Hebrew word. But then again, we can't see everything still. Even as you can see some things, you only see in part what is far grander than you can imagine. The book of Esther is showing us that God is a master weaver so we can continue to walk by faith and firm faith no matter what may come. I'm going to close with a poem by Grant Colfax Tuller. The poem is called The Master Weaver. My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors. He weaveth steadily. Oft time he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper, and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttle cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares. Nothing this truth can dim. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. Let's have firm faith in our Father's affection. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we come to you right now in our own 
state of confusion. And we, we don't see all, but we're putting our trust in you to continue to weave together our lives. Our times are in your hands. And we want to ask and pray that you will give us a firmer faith and give us eyes to see where you're at work in the world and in our lives. And may we uh, do the things that you're calling us to do and be and be firm in our faith, being willing to share that with others as the situations present themselves. We pray that you'll give us uh, your spirit in greater measure so that we might do mattering things in this time in our own day so that we might in fact lead many others into your gracious care. Help us to show Jesus, your son, to a watching world. We ask and pray in his name. Amen.